on some nigga dangerous situation I might end. And with a dragon that breathes fire and eats nice and breathes fire, it sure doesn't mean you're a coward if you're a little scared, you know what I mean? Well, at least we know where the princess is. But where's the dragon? This is Zoe Hazen, and you're listening to Catch All, a Beacon production out of Palm Beach Atlantic University. Any ideas what this episode is about? So, dragons are cool, but I doubt they cross your mind on a daily basis. But recently, I heard a segment on a podcast I enjoy called Radiolab. On this particular episode, the producers of Radiolab were quite simply answering random and intriguing questions their listeners had. And a question I never thought to ask was brought to light by a woman named Christina. And you, and what was your question to us, if you remember what it was roughly? Yeah, so I came across this article about these creatures called ohms that I guess were being, you know, washed out of these caves in Eastern Europe. What are they called? Ohms, O-L-M, these sort of like blind cave-dwelling amphibians. They're totally white. Their skin is translucent, very like otherworldly. And the article touched on the idea that, you know, folklore thought that these little creatures were actually like dragon babies being pushed out of of these caves where, where these huge dragons live. Yeah, that got my attention right away. Dragon babies? That's pretty sweet. She had done some research about dragons in different cultures around the world and discovered a common thread. This idea of dragons being a sort of like a universal myth across, you know, different disparate cultures. And Christina started to wonder why it seemed that so many cultures all over the world all have myths about dragons. What is it about, like, humans that cause them to believe in these, like, huge, scary, fire-breathing animals? So this episode, we're going to be answering the questions you never knew you had about dragons and looking at how, with the right perspective, we can notice them amongst us today. Part 1. Did they exist? Dragons are fantastical, mythical, storybook creatures. I had no idea they had any historical weight. They show up everywhere. The Radio Lab producers talk about all these similar dragon folklore dotted around the world. Florida, you have the Northern European dragon that we're all familiar with. Uh-huh. Then there's the uh, Chinese dragon, which is a little different. It doesn't have wings, doesn't breathe fire. Then there's um, other dragon-looking sort of things, the Nana Bolele. Nana Bolele. Among the Basotho people in Southern Africa. There's the Amaru associated with the Incan Empire. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that we have fabulous, awesome creatures like dragons uh, in almost every culture in the world. Uh, so this is Adrian Mayer. I'm a research scholar in the Classics Department at Stanford. And I'm most interested in is what sorts of things found in nature might have led pre-scientific people to believe that dragons or monsters or other fantastic creatures really existed, at least in the past or even maybe in the present. Adrian actually wrote a book called The First Fossil Hunters that lays out this theory that a lot of these stories were actually based on uh, people finding old, you know, fossils and bones. Fossil bones or, or teeth or claws or footprints embedded in stone. I do want to point out, though, that we can never know for certain which comes first, the observations of mysterious traces of of unknown animals or the stories of dragons. We don't know which comes first. But if the myth was already around, where did the dragons come from? The Radio Lab producers dug up another theory. 
This theory completely captivated me. Some scholars have said they're like monsters of the id. They arise from ancient memories of very real predators that were faced by our ancestors. Basically, dragons are composites of the, these creatures that used to eat us and, and hunt us and kill us, like crocodiles. Saber-toothed tigers and lions. Cave bears, gigantic serpents. Snakes. Pythons. Condors. Giant raptors. So you can take like the scaly skin of the crocodile, the claws of the saber-toothed tiger and its saber teeth, <laughs> the wings of these raptors, put them all together. So this is all the old terrors rolled into one, like boom, together. Yeah, they tap into all those fears that are ready, are ready inside of us. Okay, so that's pretty cool. But what about the fire? What creature would inspire this characteristic? Well, there are many theories about that. Actually, I took that question back to Adrian Mayer. The one that I like is connected to the devastating weapon called Greek fire. Which was this unquenchable fire. It can't be put out by water. In fact, it burns in water. And so it was a naval weapon. And I believe that scholars have found that some of the nozzles for blasting Greek fire were shaped like dragons so that the boat looked like it had a dragon on board breathing fire at the enemy ships. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. And just stories of they had dragons that breathed fire uh, would make it back to uh, to Northern Europe. That's the best theory I've heard. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like if the dragon is a composite of all the things, the creatures that have scared us, now we're part of that composite. Well, it's our technology. Is built becomes part of the creature that frightens us. Whoa, so let that sink in for a second. If we go by this theory, the most frightening creature we could dream up as a human collective operating in different cultures that did not readily communicate with each other had an element of fear for ourselves. Part 2. We still breathe fire. There's a lot you can be afraid of today. It's kind of like pick your poison. Climate crisis, economic crisis, food crisis, job crisis, water crisis, global crisis. Actual, literal fires. But it's kind of becoming numbing after a while. Like a buzz of the AC kicking in. Like the hum of the microwave. Report after report after report. I've gotten really good at tuning it out. You probably have too. But recently, I was listening to NPR, trying to be a good citizen of democracy and be informed in the world, and the segment came on. It was only a week ago that President Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea were arguing over who had the bigger nuclear button. That's right, and while members of the president's cabinet have been insisting they're pursuing diplomacy here, that doesn't mean the United States military is not preparing for a darker scenario. Here's Defense Secretary James Mattis, who was speaking last fall. You have got to be ready to ensure that we have military options that our president can employ if needed. Options? NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman learned something about one of the options and some of the planning. Hi there, Tom. Hey, Steve. What are you looking into? Well, uh, one of the options is, is tunnel warfare, and the U.S. Army is training thousands more soldiers in tunnel warfare because North Korea basically is honeycombed with tunnels. They hold troops. They could hold artillery, chemical, biological weapons, nuclear weapons. So they're training more American soldiers in the event of a military conflict to go into these tunnels. My jaw hung open and a knot formed in my throat, and I felt my stomach sink. 
And the U.S. Army is also buying specialized equipment, uh, night vision goggles, uh, specialized radios, acetylene torches, bolt cutters, and the like that would be used by these soldiers and South Korean soldiers, of course, in the event of war going into these tunnels. You know, anytime I've read about a scenario of another conflict between the Koreas, it sounds like an utter nightmare. The North Koreans have massive artillery. You'd have utter destruction in the opening minutes, perhaps. And when you tell me about tunnel training, it doesn't sound like things would get any better after those opening minutes. No, absolutely not. And Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who told the Army you have to get ready, has also said, listen, the n number of casualties in the event of war with North Korea would be worse than, than in anyone's memories. For the first time in a while, what I heard on the news warranted more than a shake of the head or an eye roll. Back when I was in the sixth grade, my class took a trip to an interactive museum in Chicago. There was a World War I exhibit replicating a trench that, that soldiers would have been in. He began in this long corridor, painted in dark reds and grays, and descended down a ramp. The dry wall abruptly became rough and brown like dirt. Dim overhead lights disappeared into spotlights along the walls, or flashing from above, accommodated by a distant rumbling. My eyes grew wide. I felt sick. With my class, we filed through the replication, our teachers calling our attention to plaques along the way. I didn't read anything. I looked at the ground and held my breath, hoping it would be over soon. My classmates had varying reactions, but we all met this piece of history with discomfort, only sensing the depths of tragedy at the edge of our emotional intelligences, but not being able to fully understand why our tummies were turning. American public school students began to learn about war in American history classes from a very young age. You learn that war isn't fun, but you also learn that there's good guys and there's bad guys, and it's scary, but it's also a part of history. As we age, some explore video games that glorify the experience or shape it into a narrative detached trope of entertainment. Many are interested in history of wars especially. There are entire sections dedicated in bookstores to novels and exposés and memoirs analyzing and recounting what happens when countries turn against each other or when they turn against themselves. We can call this a fascination but not an excitement. I think it's within a common agreement that a person of sound mind would not actively celebrate such a conflict with glee. World War II was the war to end all wars, right? Not to inspire new ones. Part 3. What's in a flame? Here's the thing. I like to tell stories. I like to inspire by cultivating all the amazing things I've heard about. I like to pass that along and make things narrative. But there's a time to be clever and there's a time to be honest. Believe what you will politically. You voted who you voted for. You are left. You are right. You have participated in a democracy, making the choice you thought was the correct choice. Your disagreements and differing opinions amongst each other have powered the vital pulse of democracy. Civil conversation is essential. But hear me when I say this. How is it the 21st century and we are preparing, even in the smallest way, for tunnel warfare? How are we preparing to go back to modern day trenches? How are we preparing to sacrifice life? I have never lived through a large-scale war, and the war on terror of my time was a hum in the background of my cushy upbringing in a middle-class American home. I have never had to suffer the unimaginable fear and pain of being a refugee, of being forced to flee your country at war with itself, to be a victim of war, and all that that brings with it as many face today. But if I've learned anything, is that despite differing experiences and ages and upbringings, as free-thinking individuals, no matter what you have or haven't seen, at the end of the day, we have to arrive at the same place. We value our own lives. We value the lives of those we love. Life is valuable. It is inherently good and it's worth protecting. Consider me naive, but I stand firm when I say, this is not the humanity I'm so inspired by, in love with, the humanity that's ready for a fight. 
Museums are full of tragedy. They document historical ties to unavoidable conflict, but they are also full of beauty, of progress and diplomacy and peace. This is not our potential, this default to violence. It may be our impulse, our nature, but it's not our destiny. I stand firm that people are people and people deserve to be safe and protected and allowed to thrive. Doesn't matter if it's life from the United States, from South or North Korea. People in power take the stage, but they are not the sum of, of all that exists within their labels. But I understand we live in a global world. We cannot pretend any longer that it is us apart from their actions and that in this global world we have a responsibility to stand for moral dignity and human rights. There is evil and destruction and violence that must be addressed. There is no question about the signal the administration is trying to send here, a reminder of what is universally considered one of the most barbaric and brutal regimes in the world. But we all know what happens when we meet fire with more fire and fury. To stand against atrocities does not mean we have to fight to kill. We have to stand against atrocities. But there is always, always another way that doesn't involve committing our own. It doesn't matter who has more destructive power or whose button is bigger. The what-ifs are teetering on becoming the tomorrows because vanity and ego and pride taste better than diplomacy. Ego will kill them. It will kill us. Ego will kill our humanity. So don't fear the dragon but feel the flame in the back of your own throat and swallow it. Extinguish prejudice, extinguish impulse, extinguish political ties and ignorance, and look in the mirror at your family, look at your neighbor, look across the ocean and see not a dragon. Fear not the dragon, and you will see people just like you, gazing back with the same heart. This unifying power is a joint march here tonight of the two teams from the National Olympic Committees of the Republic of Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. We thank you. All the athletes around me, all the spectators here in the stadium, and all Olympic fans watching around the world, we are all touched by this wonderful gesture. We all join and support you in your message of peace. United in our diversity, we are stronger than all the forces that want to divide us. We made the dragon. We are the dragon. But we don't have to be. Thanks for sticking around. This episode has been a while in the making. We went a little deep this time, so next go around, get ready for something a little lighter and a little weirder. We are going to unpack the meme and take it all the way back to the early days of the viral internet up to examining the unique brand of humor that dominates our shared virtual spaces today. Stay tuned. But before I sign off, let me say, here's to all the curious, the open-hearted, the ones who are willing to put aside their own voices to cultivate a mind that yearns to listen. Here's to you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>